we flourish when we achieve a measure of competence um, in in our own spheres, whether it's in our work, in our labor, uh, over life, a measure of agency over our own lives. We have a sense that we can care for ourselves and for others. Um, and I think this is you know, it's so essential too to his critique of institutions, because what what they have done essentially is to outsource this and 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 disable us, because the professions, as he understood it, outsourced our capacity to care for ourselves and, and our loved ones in, in all sorts of ways. All right, everybody, what's going on? This is the Other Life Podcast. I am Justin. This week, we are talking with L.M. Sacassis. Michael is, I would describe him as a theorist of technology, mostly. That's what his public writing mostly revolves around. But he's also interested in other topics. He works with Christian Study Center in Gainesville. So he does have one foot in academia, but he also spends a lot of his time writing in public. And so he's a really interesting example of kind of the new breed of, of public intellectual, which kind of skirting the line between academic and just traditional public writer. So he's built quite an interesting little following. He's been mentioned to me many times as someone who's really smart and thoughtful and someone I should have on the podcast. So he's particularly interested in Ivan Illich, and that's why we wanted to have him on the podcast right now. In fact, in the show, I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Nina Power, because she's doing a course on Ivan Illich starting in July. So Nina and I both think that Illich is really important right now and still under-recognized. And so, so Michael is, uh, I would say, an expert on Illich and his substack, The Convivial Society, is a reference to a book by Ivan Illich. We thought now would be a perfect time to get him on the show. So we have an excellent discussion all about Ivan Illich, various themes in Illich's work. The conversation really revolves around sensuality, was interestingly, not in a necessarily planned way, became one of the main themes of, of the talk that we have today. And we talk about the body and we talk about the politics that flow from from sensuality and the body versus the politics that flow from a more kind of modern, institutionalized, rationalized perspective. And so it was very quite interesting. Yeah, I'd say those were the main themes. We also talk a little bit about Michael's personal trajectory as as an intellectual and the trade-offs involved between, you know, doing academic work, but also doing public intellectual work and how he came to publish his work independently on the internet. His book is called The Frailest Thing. I asked him, you know, why would you publish on the internet when you could have published probably with the press, I'm sure. These are the questions that a lot of people in my audience are very interested in for themselves. So it's always great to get some personal insight from successful public intellectuals are managing to carve out an interesting niche for themselves, whether it's in academia or outside of academia or some combination. of. So Michael was really interesting, very, uh, very smart and thoughtful. And I really enjoyed this conversation. So I hope you find it interesting as I did. And that's about all for now by way of introduction. If you're interested in this and you like it, you should definitely go check out Michael's work. I would send you to his Substack called The Convivial Society or check out his book. It's called The Frailist. I'll put links to both of those in the show notes. All right. So that's all I got by way of introduction. On to the show. All right. Well, just to kick things off, Michael, I wonder if you'd be so kind to just for my audience, give us a little bit of a sense of of your background. How did you first start writing about technology and thinking about technology? And just give us the kind of the the short summary of who you are and your 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 background or position as a thinker and as a writer. Sure. Yeah. With regards to the question of when I first started thinking about technology, I think it, it happened between uh, somewhere between a master's degree that I did in theological studies and then a PhD program that I entered um, in 2009. And that PhD program was at the University of Central Florida. And it was titled Texts and Technology. 
Um, my interest had at that point sort of gravitated towards um, history, the history and philosophy of technology. And this program was a digital humanities program. So it wasn't ex exactly a, a perfect overlap with where my interests were heading and where they had uh, developed, but it was close enough. And so I enrolled in that program and uh, went through, began working a dissertation on Hannah Arendt. And the idea was to sort of unpack uh, what I felt was an implicit philosophy of technology in her work that was sort of run through her work. Um, I finished, I left that program ABD um, for a variety of reasons. But um, that's where, where I began to think about questions related to technology, society, um, what I sometimes think of as real life and where those questions came into focus for me. Okay, excellent, excellent. And tell us a little bit about your blog. So you've been writing uh, for many years now, a, a lot of writing on the internet. G give us a sense of over the past 10 years, uh, people listening to this probably, are, if they know about you, they know about you through your blog. But how would you kind of explain the, the allocation of your effort over the past 10 years? I mean, are you, uh, how much of your time and effort and energy has been put into your professional work versus the blog? And uh, just give us, a, give us a, a portrait of that. Sure. I, I started the blog as an effort to um, sort of think out loud through my graduate work. And it, there was a, at least I experienced what, what I felt like a lack of a, an intellectual community. Um, a lot of the people involved in the program, I was in, like myself, had um, work alongside of the, so we had jobs, we had day jobs. Um, a lot of our classes were in the evening. And so there wasn't much of an opportunity for the development. Um, and so I, I turned to writing online uh, in order to do that. And so I started the blog in an effort to just sort of post about what I had been reading uh, to think through some of those questions. And, um, and it, it, in a sense, took on a life of its own. I, I continued to do that through the program. Uh, and then even after I left the program, I, I continued writing online. Um, in many ways, it was sort of a, a gig on the side, as it were. Uh, throughout most of that time, I was either some part-time or full-time teaching or a combination of adjunct teaching and some secondary ed teaching. Um, and so it, it was always something that was happening uh, alongside of um, other work that was not directly related questions about technology and philosophy or culture or anything of that sort. Um, and and I've, I've continued in many regards to do it in that vein. Um, the, the blog is defunct now as of about a year and a half ago. And so now I'm writing a newsletter that I began while I was doing the blog and it kept going beyond the blog. Um, and so that newsletter also is in some respects a kind of side hustle. Um, it overlaps a little bit more uh, with the work I'm doing now. I'm an associate director at, at the Christian Study Center of Gainesville, uh, which allows me a lot of latitude. Uh, research and write and teach um, on Yvonne Illich, for example. And so there is uh, more overlap now between those two things than there was uh, previously. Uh, and that's been over the last uh, two years. Okay, excellent. So you're now splitting your time between the substack and an academic position. And so is the is the balance of your effort, is it like 90% of your time goes to your academic position and 10% goes to the substack? Or is it closer to 50-50 or what? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think it would be, um, I describe it as a non-traditional academic position, you know, for one thing. Um, but then I would say it just varies. Uh, like I said, over the, for example, over the, the spring semester, I was teaching a course on Illich at the center. And that overlapped very nicely with some of the writing that I was doing for the Substack. So there was, it would be hard for me to parse out, you know, what was what. Uh, it, it flowed into one and the two things flowed into each other very well at that point. Uh, and so I think it, it just varies. I don't know that I have a good, good sense of the percentage of time. Um, you know, I give a good amount of time to, to the writing. Um, it's lessened to some degree over the last couple of months because some of the other responsibilities have kicked up. So I try to balance it uh, responsibly as best as I can. Right. Sure. Yeah, I understand. So. 
We have here also my friend and colleague, Nina Power, in part because Nina and I are rolling out our own independent online course on Ivan Illich. And so that was why we wanted to talk with you, Michael, because we think that Ivan Illich is particularly interesting for this moment in time. And he remains, I think, uh, somewhat under underappreciated, somewhat under-recognized. And so we thought it'd be it'd be fantastic to have you on to have a, a conversation in large part about Ivan Illich and then, and then hopefully some other assorted topics. Nina, if you want to chime in at any time to, uh, to, to ask any questions, you can, of course, uh, you know, steer this with me. But maybe the, the best place to start would just be, Michael, I wonder if you could share with, with Nina and I and with my audience kind of what first got you interested in Ivan Illich and, you know, what really did you see as, as the main pull there? What, what pulled you towards his work? Yeah, uh, the, the Ivan Illich origin story uh, for me uh, began when uh, another scholar that, that I respected uh, and still uh, respect quite a bit, Alan Jacobs, um, referenced Jake, uh, Illich in a, in a blog post. It was around 2010. So like I said, the program I was in was a text and technology history of, of textual technologies program. Uh, so I had been become interested in those um, questions and topics. And uh, in the process of, of saying this new book that had come out is not very good, Jacob said, here are some other examples of some really good books on this subject. And one of those was um, In the Vineyard of the Text, which was Illich's last book. Um, and so I thought, well, let, let's see what this is about. So I picked that up. Uh, and found it to be a really, uh, this is not a word I guess one would usually use of an academic uh, text, but it was a beautiful book, uh, in my view, um, deeply infused with serious questions, moral concerns, uh, very erudite. Uh, it, it covered areas that I had become interested in, questions of embodiment. Um, there was a, a media ecology strand that ran through it, uh, which I was also very interested in. And so I think the combination of, of what I took to be very you know, serious scholarly and deep research with um, a kind of a emotional center or a moral center in the book that came across as, as very different from the kind of writing or reading that I had been doing um, up to that point. Um, and so I was immediately drawn to to him at that point. And so uh, I, I confess that I, I read Tool Conviviality after that, found it very useful uh, in thinking about technology. Um, and then it took a little while at, after that to begin really diving into the full body of his work and to become with the whole trajectory of his thought. And, and as I did so, um, I certainly agree that, that he is a, a vital thinker. Uh, I found him immensely helpful in navigating uh, many of the questions that come up uh, in British society um, and, and would certainly love to see more broadly read. And yeah, excellent. That's, that's a nice way to put it. There is something unique about his style and his tone. That is, it's very hard to communicate to other people. Like when people ask me why I'm interested in Illich, it, it's kind of hard to describe verbally. But there's there's something there's something about the the style and the tone and the added the general attitude that's quite unique and and powerful. Nina, don't be shy here if you want to uh, you know ask anything yourself. Yeah, no, sure. I'm just reflecting on this this question of kind of like why Illich now, and I think it it is it is very interesting. I mean, there's something kind of. Um, already sort of para or post-academic about him or even anti-academic which goes along with his kind of skepticism towards institutions which I think is a very important kind of strand in radical thinking which is which is sometimes missing um, on the left and I think there's something very uh, almost post-liberal about the way in which Illich goes beyond I suppose um, left and right division and obviously he's kind of Catholic but a kind of um, uh, a sort of uh, renegade <laughs> religious thinker in many ways um, and a kind of Christian humanist in some ways um, also a kind of you know he's interested in um, well South America early on and he has all these kind of uh, these travels and and um, he 
kind of, in a way, almost not exactly systematically, but he kind of goes through all of the existing institutions in society and kind of questions their, uh, what they're doing in terms of, of these ideas about kind of health and well-being and conviviality. And I, so I think there's something extremely sort of um, timely, and, and I guess Agambin makes this point as well, um, even about Illich's uh, work at the time, which was particularly unpopular, which was his work on gender, which I think got him in quite a lot of trouble in the early 90s. And I think you see this really interesting confluence of people on the left, in the centre, on the right, people who are interested in this kind of, uh, you know, concern with institutions, obviously the concern with technology, which we're maybe primarily concerned with here, which is, you know, perennial question about who we are as human beings, what are we doing with, with tools, what are they doing to us, and that question he asks about, you know, our tool, are we using tools or are they, um, doesn't really go away. And I, and I think one of the major paradoxes, perhaps, about the internet age in a certain way is you kind of have this possibility of some illiterate projects like the learning networks idea so you actually do have the possibility of like us for example people with a similar interest linking up where previously we, we probably would have never met or encountered each other right and so it's possible to create these kind of networks that are driven by passion interest um, you know shared concern that don't have any particular purpose they're not structured they're not for a um you know they're not within the existing in- educational uh, institutions and 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 you know like if you go on youtube and you want to learn how to do something there's an enormous plethora of wonderful instruction videos made by people purely out of the kind of i don't know their own kindness and their desire to share their own skills and there's something so illichian about that at their kind of human level um at the same time obviously we're kind of you know and this was i think one of my increasing concerns about some of the left thinking around acceleration and technology was a kind of um i don't know going along with I suppose, an extremely rapid um, technophilic um, image of the future in which we can somehow use technology to solve all of our problems. And, you know, yes, you can get that out of a certain reading of Marx. But at the same time, you know, I'd I'd read Deschooling Society a long time ago and then later I'd read um, Energy and Equity. And I think Illich's um, discussion of speed and acceleration, accelerationism in that book was was very 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 important to me you know and it really remained with me this kind of um and and now thinking about things like degrowth and the question of nature which you know often gets described into environment and ecology and so on but i think we're fund- we're talking about fundamentally nature including our own nature um you know that that so many people are kind of i think on Illichian <laughs> grounds, whether they're religious or or not, and I'm quite interested in religious communities in particular that kind of, um, you know have have a kind of uh, I don't know a human relation to nature, which is also mediated through a, a question of God or the divine. Um, so there's there's that kind of so much in in there. Um, so I suppose maybe my question is is a question. Um, <laughs> sorry, great. that was a kind of <laughs> no, going. No, that's good. I love it. Off. Strong opening. <laughs> it was all true. <laughs> Was I suppose, you know, to be more more specific, in relation to the kind of question of, you know, contemporary technology as it exists in the light of all of this fantasizing and technophilia and future lust and, and you know, Silicon Valley type thing. Um, you know, Michael, do you, you know, what do you think are the kind of most pressing uh, kind of concerns that are sort of... Um, uh, I don't know, responsible, Illichian, <laughs> Christian humanist position might uh, need to sort of tackle, I guess. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, 
I, I think one of the reasons Illich initially resonated with me and, and even in just picking up his work on, on technology, um, there, there was a, a very, um, very strong resonance is because of the centrality of, of the opposition that he draws very early on that I think runs through his work um, between a, a mode of receiving life as a gift contrasted to the effort to control, to program, to manage, uh, to eliminate risk, um, to bring it under kind of technocratic control, um, you know, systems of prediction and control. And I I tend to think that, that that's, a, you know, about as fundamental um, an issue and a question as we can raise about present technological culture, uh, because it, um, you know, I, I think it gets to the heart of how we use our tools, how our tools use us. Now, it, it, it was interesting to me to see how Illich did um, sort of cool to the possibilities offered by computerized networks, uh, cybernetic networks, um, from from I think in that period um, that that deschooling society sort of closes, being open to the possibilities raised by um, by you know I think what he would at the time called cybernetic tools, to then coming to see this the importance of of systems as opposed to tools. Um, late seventies, early eighties, this this seems to become a really uh, dramatic turn in his own thinking, retroactively revisits some of his positions and, and comes to think that, that he may not have been uh, adequately addressing the issues raised precisely because he was still thinking of um, institutions included uh, in this word tools as things that stood apart from us that we might be able to, if we just thought correctly about them, master and convivial end. Uh, whereas he becomes to he comes to see them as systems that incorporate us in ways that uh, are more difficult to um, to achieve that distance from that 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 the idea of a tool presumed um, and and the place of the body I think uh, in, in that turn in him becomes fundamental I think to the last stage of his career um, and the displacement of the centrality of the body to human experience and so I think those those issues uh, that that are in that kind of nexus is development. Um, you know the the lo- the loss of the body and the sense in human experience, uh, and then the the idea of just being willing to renounce the desire to control and our experience, uh, and to accept our experience as a gift, which also entails accepting limitations, accepting of suffering, um, but for the sake of what I think he would say is a, a richer, better way of of experiencing, um, you know, of, of inhabiting human existence. So those, those are the, I think, the fundamental questions for me or, or issues for me or, or themes that Illich raises that um, we have to come back to again and again. And all. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah well, no, that's, that's well put. That's beautiful. <laughs> It's quite interesting, isn't it? There's there's a paradox or contradiction in that when we read Illich today, when we read his critiques of institutions, which are now several decades old, they they ring so true today. I mean, if you look at public opinion data on institutions, you know, trust in institutions almost across the board, it's it's like a, a gradual decreasing line. If you look at any of the mainstream institutions, media, academia, and so on, and and so in a way, he seems so prescient, and at the same time. We have these new affordances through technology where, in a weird way, it's like the ability to actually develop meaningful, embodied, and authentic relationships seems to be weirdly increasing as well if you learn how to use these technologies correctly. And I think that this is kind of what is evoked in, in this idea of, of, of tools for conviviality. Of course, that's the, that's the name of your newsletter as well. It's an idea that comes out of Illich, one of the titles of it, one of his books. How do you think about this paradox or this or this contradiction where 
Illich seemed to be right about the ways in which technology and institutions would increasingly kind of oppress us. And yet at the same time, abilities to actually follow through on kind of Illichian uh, lines of flight are also increasing at the same time, thanks to technology. Am I onto something there, Michael? Do you agree or disagree? And I'm just curious if you think about that paradox. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I don't want to speak for Illich. Um, you know, so I, I I would wonder, for example, what what he would make of what we're doing right now. Um, you know, obviously, I'm glad for it. I'm, I'm happy to be doing this. I think Nino was right at the outset. Uh, you know, the, the chances of us uh, having cross paths if we, you know, were doing this sort of thing in the 1990s is, you know, maybe in the 80s would be very limited or, uh, you know, um, would be unlikely. Um, and so there's something that I would say is, is useful about this. At the same time, I don't think he would say this is, you know, very convivial. Um, and it, it lacked um, the, the embodied presence that I think was so important for him um, and to him. And so I think that these tools can have a place, um, you know, to some degree, I think we're always navigating, um, you know, we're always um, trying to, I'm not sure if, if, if compromise is the right word, but sort of, um, you know, knowingly uh, understand what these tools can accomplish and, and at the same time recognize that they're, they're not going to, you know, of themselves realize the depth of what I think Illich wanted to, to capture, right? So, um, you know, if this were to at some point, uh, you know, lead to, to us being able to meet in person, uh, share a meal together, um, drink together, and, and, and generate a friendship over time, uh, that I think would, would be certainly useful. But, but the tool itself, uh, this won't bring us to that point, I don't think, in his view, however you know, good it may be. You know. What about fully developed VR? Could that? No. <laughs> yeah, no. I, I, you both I, say I no? Think, I'm not sure, no, no. That that, it, there's still, um, you know, a, it's, the, it's the cutting off of the, of the, of the, of the, the, the sensual experience, I think, you know, of, of, of the body. Um, you know, he, he has some, there's a small talk that he gives in honor of Jacques Ellul around 1983, or 1993, excuse me. And, um, and he speaks very prophetically there about, um, and by prophetically, I mean intensely and, and with, um, uh, with, with a deeply critical spirit about the way that we're cutting ourselves off from reality. And I, when I've written about that, I, I do say I'm not sure that, that I would necessarily use that language. Um, you know, I don't think what we're doing right now is, is less real, sort of ontologically speaking, than, than you know, if we were in person. But it's, it's certainly um, a different mode of experiencing reality. And, you know, he, I think he, he would, uh, he has these passages where he talks about, you know, you, you can't be a, a friend unless you, you can smell a person, right? These passages are a little quirky in some respects, but I think highlight the, the essence of that fully embodied experience of the other. Um, you know, I can't quite see myself in your pupil, which was this thing that he made such a big deal of in, in certain cases where, where you know, the, the gift of the other is, is that I see myself in them, see myself reflected in them, uh, and quite literally in a reflection in, in the pupil of somebody's eyes. You know, he's, he's talking about this with Jerry Brown on his radio show when he's there with Carl Mitchum. Uh, and, and, you know, in essence, using a modern tool, what t then may have been something like what we're doing, right, gathering in a, in a technologically mediated way. And um, and you can tell he's uncomfortable with it, and he he tells Brown this is this is not great. You know, I'm I'm consenting to do this in this way that he consents um, to do things out of a sense of obligation. He uses the language of obedience and 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 is open to what 
surprise might arise from it. Um, but he doesn't see it as a substitute um, for the fully embodied experience of friendship. And I think he might say it, it tempts us. It tempts us to imagine that we can uh, replace that with the deeply mediated experience. Um, and so if, if the fullness of the body, if, if we're not present to one another, um, I think it, it would always, in Illich's view, fall short of what he would understand as conviviality. And Nina, I don't know if you would see it the same way. Um, yeah, I do. And I think increasingly so, actually. And I think the last, you know, 15, 16 months have really clearly accelerated the, you know, we don't have to imagine what it's like to, li to, like, to live a life online and to see people that you love only in this way. And I know quite a few people have refused to even use um, Zoom and these technologies because of the, you know, in a way, the horror of it. And Agambin talked very well about these this trajectory i think and and you know he was very much attacked by some people um on the left for kind of questioning the pandemic narrative kind of measures but i think the level at which agamben was talking and i think it was very illichian was precisely in these kind of deep anthropological human ways about things like embodiment in the face and and i think at the end you know the older i get it's it's like I feel that there isn't really anything else, you know, and, and that these desires to want to change nature to, you know, as you say, Michael, very well, this desire to, to control and to fix and to solve problems and to um, respond to desires that you might have. But, you know, is a, is a refusal, um, A, to be grateful for what there is and to, to accept um, nature and reality and everything that we do have, you know, friendship and, and you know, when we when we have those things. And um, but also, yeah, it's it's to mistake or to try to avoid this sense of tragedy and suffering, which, again, you know, Illich is so, so profound about. And I was teaching Illich the other day and people were responding to an adult ed class. So a lot of retired people and some people were really finding it difficult to accept this defense of suffering in a way they didn't want to that, you know, he said, well, well, why is he saying suffering is a good thing? And, and I'm sort of saying, well, yes, but it's also kind of unavoidable. And it's, you know, in order to to sort of deal with 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 life and death and to to have those in relation again you know as as really many people in history did you know humanity did have a different understanding could say um you know it wasn't a hygienic understanding of death and how these things um you know that this is he's he's mourning as you say like the loss of these a relation to these things because when when everything becomes um detached and disembodied and technologized and institutionalized or systematized then we you know meaning is lost and i think you have some beautiful phrases in your um collection of of um thoughts on technology in the in the frailest thing document where you're you know, you're talking about the undesirability of a frictionless life, you know, the idea that you can somehow get to where you want to go without, you know, without any turmoil or troubles or obstacles and, and that this is what you want. And I think we're coming really up against these kind of questions when it comes to very real things like um, surrogacy, you know, does everybody have a right to have a child, for example? You know, is there a way in which people might, you know, in a way need to come to terms with if they can't have a child or it doesn't work out for them? You know, that, that these desires can't be answered at the level of a kind of consumerist desire. You know, just because you want something, it doesn't mean that you should have it or that you will get it. You know, and I think that kind of logic has permeated almost every aspect of human life that takes it precisely away from the mythical, and the tragic, you know, the meaningful. Um, and uh, yeah, so so in that sense, I, I I kind of completely agree with um, what you're saying, and and just you, you know another sentence I really liked from your work where you're saying, you know, uh, why a life made easier by technology may not be happier, 
you know, that this idea that we want ease and speed and comfort. And, you know, I think of that dead Kennedy's record, give me convenience or give me death, you know, this, <laughs> this fundamental like axiom of, you know, consumer capitalism, you know, and I, I, I do think, you know, the, old, the older I get, you know, the more I just go outside and, you know, listen to a bird singing or see a tree or something. And I'm just very, very moved by these things. And they're, they're, they're so simple, but they're so important. And, and, you know, I feel, you know, like this kind of great desire to defend nature, you know, to defend everything that is not man-made, as it were. You know, of course, we are part of, we are part of nature, but the further away we get from our own nature and, and our own body, our integrated relation to nature, um, the more, I don't know, deathly, but not in a meaningful way, yeah, right. <laughs> things become. There's, I've been thinking about this recently because, I, you know, Illich certainly is not... Um, I wouldn't say he's anti-technology. Um, you know, he's he's obviously very much against certain forms of technology and certain forms of human life. Um, and so it, it's not as if he wants... I mean, he's very adamant, but he, he's not romantic about the past. He doesn't want to revive some past age, although he, he took great... Um, I think he draws a great deal of wisdom from the 12th century, which was a very uh, period of human history for him in respects. But um, there's so, so it's not that we're trying to, to you know, regain some sort of noble savage state, um, but that there is, and this key concept for Illich is that there are these thresholds that need to be identified. Um, and that there's, you know, I've, I've been thinking of it in terms of a threshold of artificiality, right? So, and, and I don't mean that in a, in a necessarily pejorative sense, right? There are all sorts of things that are works of human artifice and thus artificial, and that's fine and they're good and, and they can be very useful, but there is some threshold of artificiality where somehow the ratio between what we think of as the human-built and the non-human-built world uh, tips over in a way that is um, that that becomes you know at first uh, you know as Illich says of uh, of the idea of thresholds you know you pass this second watershed and and things all of a sudden become uh, counterproductive right they become counterproductive and then destructive and so identifying where where that threshold might be or just being cognizant that it exists and and so just simply you know we, we spoke of accelerating earlier um, you know Illich in the midst of writing during the Vietnam War uses the word escalation you can't just escalate your thing your your yourself out of every problem you have, but that's the only mode that industrial society knows. And that at some point, the, the best move is actually to begin to limit, to, to bring back, uh, to, to push um, in the other direction so that you're, you're back on the other side of this threshold. Now, you know, obviously, what, what specifically we're talking about matters a great deal with respect to where that threshold might be and whether it's even possible to go back uh, or how one might do it. But that there is a, a threshold of artificiality, I think, is certainly a, a useful concept um, that we disconnect ourselves from the the rhythms of nature, if you will, uh, to to such a degree that it becomes um, unhealthy, literally unhealthy. Uh, you know, in in the sense that it is not good for us as the sorts of creatures that we are. Um, and then there is a loss of meaning comes with that as well. And it's also what we do to the natural world um, as a, as a consequence of that um, too. It's interesting. Listening to Nina mention a gambin a couple times, it, it it's got me thinking about how you know it seems to me there's a real what what what's really going on here is about the senses because it just seems to me that Illich and a gambin what they kind of have in common is is a kind of they they see or assign a certain primacy to to the senses and there is a kind of politics that flows from a kind of allegiance to one's own senses. And that politics is a very different kind of politics than a politics that flows from an allegiance to, let's call it rationality or, um, or 
or um, authority, really? Would, would authority and rationality seem to be kind of aligned in a way? Because if you have a kind of rationalist mental model of the world, you're going to tend to trust those who have who are the smartest or who are deemed to be the smartest or uh, most trustworthy. And so I think that this is kind of what, what we're seeing play out in, in, a, in a very interesting way. It's like if you take your own senses as base reality, then you're going to just instinctively oppose things like overly aggressive lockdowns. And you're going to say, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to see my mother and my father in person whether you want me to or not, whether it means I might die or not. It's just like if your senses are based reality, it leads to a certain uh, way of acting and, and a certain way of, of taking on different types of risks and a certain way of rejecting certain directives. But if you don't take your own senses as base reality, then you, you, you become encapsulated in this kind of like controllable uh, rea- reality, this kind of controllable shell where you're constantly going to be basically at the whims of whatever in society is deemed as high status, as most intelligent, as correct, um, according to, um, you know, the, the, the smartest people uh, who are defining things, basically. I, I, does this make sense to you guys? Are you seeing something similar? I, I feel like to me, this is kind of why people like a Gambin are so interesting, why people like Illich are so interesting, and why these people feel so refreshing to read. And, and it's why it's so hard to find perspectives and serious intellectual work coming out today that that, that feels like people like a Gambit and people like Illich because they have a sense of it's something about this this politics of, of sensibility as base reality, as a kind of non-negotiable base reality. I don't know if you find anything here, but this is what I'm thinking about. I, I, I can't speak for a, a Gambit. I don't know his work very well at all. Um, you know, I, I, um, I know that he, he spoke of uh, our, you know, about, I think now four or five years ago of Illich arriving at his moment of legibility. Uh, Sajay Samuel at, at, at Penn State, you know, cites that line. Um, but but I think the word that came to my mind as you were um, uh, this, you know setting up this question, Justin, is is the word of competence. I think Illich I think recognizes that that we re- we we flourish when we achieve a measure of competence um, in in our own spheres, whether it's in our work, in our labor, uh, over life, a measure of agency over our own lives. Um, you know, we have a sense that we can care for ourselves and for others. Um, and I think this is, you know, so essential too to his critique of institutions because what what they have done essentially is to outsource this and 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 disable us. You know, he has this uh, short collection uh, where he talks about the disabling professions because the professions, as he understood it, disabled us, um, outsourced our capacity to care for ourselves and, and our loved ones in, in all sorts of ways. Um, there's a lovely passage in which Illich, I think it's in Tools for Conviviality, talks about how you know, the human being has an innate capacity to, uh, to, to care for, to, to bury, um, to, to build uh, each other's homes. There's a list of things that he says, we have this capacity to do these things for ourselves and for those we love. And if we did them, we'd have a sense of purpose, a sense of satisfaction. It, it would be good for us. But uh, society has has evolved in such a way that we do not feel we can do any of these things. I'll share with you a story that um, in the class that I was teaching uh, last semester, a grad student um, shared with with us as we were talking about limits to medicine. And he he said that in in the last semester, a colleague he he was a scientist and in, in at his lab, a, a colleague had died at their death, and it was a very 
traumatic moment, obviously, and it was, it was, it was shocking. And, and he gathered with a couple of his, um, his colleagues to, to talk about it and to just comfort one another in a small, very small group, two or three people. Um, and, and one of them said, well, I don't think we should be doing this without a counselor present. Uh, and, and to me, that was such a, um, a poignant example of precisely the thing that Illich was talking about, the sense that, that I can't do this for you and you can't do this for me unless there's a certified professional present to guide us through this. When, when comforting one another in times of loss has been so fundamental uh, to the human condition, that, that we may, would not be able to do that for ourselves because we have been de-skilled in that uh, arena of, of, of human um, experience so profoundly, I think was a, a wonderful, illust- well, not wonderful, it was a tragic illustration of the loss of competence that Illich saw being at the heart of our uh, dependence upon institutions, about consumer society, but on the service industry and the, and the professions, et cetera. And I, th- I think that's what came to my mind as, as you were describing this, Justin. It's well put. Nina, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that or if you want to maybe switch gears. Um, yeah, no, no. I mean, I, t- I was thinking actually about um, kind of social roles. And I do a podcast with a couple of other people with Helen Rollins and Benjamin Studebaker. And um, Benjamin al- always talks about this this kind of loss of social roles. And it's very interesting to contrast, I suppose, this kind of scepticism or what, you know, to maybe increasing scepticism towards experts and systems and structures and institutions, you know, which which feels very Illichian, um, hence his sort of continuing relevance. Um, but, but at, you know, at the same time, there's still, yeah, like in your, your very sort of rip, sad and revealing story, this kind of idea that there must be um, professional mediation and this, you know, this, this, yeah, total lack of um, autonomy or capacity, collective, you know, a collective sense of autonomy and capacity or, you know, taking responsibility for oneself and others thereby. And I think, again, when I was teaching Illich recently, you know, people saying, oh, but he's he sounds very individualistic, you know, all this stuff about autonomy. And I was trying to say, well, I, you know, I don't think that, if they're separable. I think if you understand it, it's it's like to take care of oneself is also to take care of others. You know, it's it's to basically not put yourself in a situation where you, you know, you are dependent upon other structures in order to be looked after and that, you know, therefore you are kind of not responsible for yourself. And I think the the you know, of course in a certain sense that sounds almost like you know, I don't know, individualistic or liberal, you know, because I think parts of the left have become so dependent upon thinking about the state or you know, that the, the the state is the one that takes care of you in a certain sense, you know, like, so like, for example, in the, the National Health Service, which, you know, in many ways is a wonderful institution in, in the UK, which I mean, it's an absolutely gi- ginormous bureaucracy. I mean, like more than a million and a half people work for it. I mean, that's more than one sixtieth of the population. Um, You know, so on the one hand, it's this kind of incredible post-war welfare thing. But on the other, I mean, psychologically and, and in, in, in other ways, and I think, you know, one, it's it's hard to criticise the NHS. I mean, you get in a lot of trouble when if you do, actually. Like, people are very resistant to any kind of criticism of the NHS because they think that criticism is always coming from the right. You know, like, oh, you want to demolish free healthcare. And it's like, no, no. <laughs> there's a, There must be another way, which is almost like the, the Elitian point about, well, actually, there's more than you can do. You know, you can take care of yourself and others, you know, without first 
and foremost thinking about the state doing it for you or experts doing it for you. And it's, it's very hard. I find it very difficult even here to articulate this particular position, which I don't think is a right wing position or has anything in common with a, you know, a kind of li- a neoliberal individualism or, you know, and of course, it's nothing to do with privatised healthcare. It's something else. And I and I think maybe there's this whole area between the individual and the state, which used to maybe be covered by things like the church and the parish and, and community groups and, you know, where people had ties that were not simply themselves and their family, but were actually, you know, this whole middle range of ties and relation community that that is just being destroyed by a certain liberalism. And I wonder how we can find a language to talk about you know, those forms of relating and dependency without being accused of falling into right-wing positions, I guess. That's that's my question. I, I, I sympathize very much with that. Uh, you know, that, that there's... Um... There are segments of a village's work which, if, if sort of pulled out in the American context, I, I say that they sound very libertarian. Um, but that that's only you're, you would be only I think be seeing part of uh, you know one side of a coin, and the other side of the coin is is the interdependence. And I don't have it pulled up right now, and I don't have it quite committed to memory. But again, I think it's in Tools for Conviviality, maybe it's in, in Deschooling, where he talks about what that what he is aiming for is he doesn't use the word autonomy, but it's, it's a measure of of agency for the sake of a mutual interdependence, right? For the sake of the the community that you can help, your family, your neighborhood. So it is not um, a kind of radical bootstrapping individualism. Um, it, it is something different than that. But our, our you know, certainly here in the States, and, and it sounds like also in the UK, our political landscape, you know, public discourse is such that to raise certain kinds of questions or concerns is to immediately sort of be positioned as being, um, you know, on on the right in these ways that that I don't think is what actually is the case for for Illich. And of course, Illich, even in his own life, never made anybody on the on the right or the left happy. Those, the, you know, many anecdotes about those who came to Cuernavaca thinking they were getting something and being disappointed because that's not exactly what they were getting. They're getting something different altogether, for which I don't think we have didn't have then a very useful categories and don't have now uh, also. And I think that this is. Um, in some ways, I think the burden for those who would recover Illich is to to create the space to hear, to just first hear what he is saying, apart from the categories that we would be immediately tempted to impose upon him based on our, our present um, political space. Yeah, I think that's right. I think I think the the reason Illich feels today so kind of post left and post right is the same reason why he feels so relevant and and prescient now. Why, as Agamben says, right now seems to be the hour of Illich's legibility is is precisely because it seems to me that as people are waking up to the disabling tendencies of institutions or the disabling tendencies of these kind of professionalized structures that largely kind of dominate the 20th century kind of period, people are realizing that actually if— if institutions as such are a big part of the problem, then to 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 reconstitute our lives in a way that is desirable essentially requires us to create these life worlds kind of from from scratch in a way together, not as not as individuals, because you can't you literally can't do that as an individual, but with the people around you more so than like the big national party that you most align with, because that big national political party is always going to kind of uh, reproduce and recapitulate the same problems with institutions that are becoming more and more kind of visible and legible to everyone. So I think it has it has this interesting 
effect on us today with the, the decline of institutions is in a way making all of us, at least I think, you know, the more the most thoughtful and, and perceptive people who are really trying to figure out like how to constitute a correctly constituted life. It's making people post right and post left because you kind of have to do it from scratch. And that's going to require maybe a little bit of both or something like that. I, I'm not sure what the right way to put that is, um, but that it's something like that, that that I might suggest. I'm not sure if you guys would agree with that or go in a different direction. Yeah, I mean, just quickly on that point, I mean, you know, Benjamin Studebaker's point about social roles is that in a way they've kind of been destroyed, you know, like, so the point about competence is you can't be kind of good at a thing if you don't actually have a role, like, you don't know, you know, everybody's a kind of been forced into a kind of precarious, um, you know, multiple job having person, and then the fragility of identity that then gets kind of played out in that regard, you know, like, I, I, I think the identity question becomes then a kind of symptom, actually, of a loss of all these ties, or a felt and anxiety in the face of you know the absence of social ties and social role and meaning precisely and I suppose it's you know it's it's very interesting to think about this post-liberal convergence I was talking to some people from the Bruderhof last night who you know are kind of a sort of Amish type um you know Christian uh um, group who are very committed to the land and to nature and they're very you know they're very concerned with tool use and the body and very very interesting people and um and it was very interesting because there were also lots of people there who were post-liberals of all different kinds. You know, some people were religious, some people, I don't know, political atheists, some people were sort of centrist, some people were left, some people were more kind of conservative. And I, there was really this sense of kind of convergence on the kind of, at least on the diagnosis of a crisis, like this total absence of, you know, everyone, you know, and if you read all of the post-liberal thinkers, I mean, going back to McIntyre, but kind of more recent, there's this kind of, you know, constant... Um, I suppose, yeah, worry and diagnosis of this absence of this this middle ground, you know, all of these sorts of, um, yeah, me medium-sized ties, I suppose I want to say. And I don't know, I, maybe I'm just kind what of would... overly obsessed with this this thing, but yeah, like what would they, we have to start from scratch in a way, or like they do exist. I mean, people go to church, people have, you know, civic responsibility, people have local ties. Um yeah. Well, I think it kind of goes back to sensibility. It's like you, you we're we're in the wake of institutional collapse, we are rebuilding from scratch, but what is scratch? I think on some level it is our own senses, it's our own sensibilities. It's like the actual face-to-face -face meetings, the actual people around us. There is real data there and there's also real feedback. We have built-in processes that make us fairly good at detecting, okay, this person is trustworthy, this person's not. I can invest in this person, I won't invest in this person. There is a real kind of rigor to personal sensibility. There's a certain trustworthiness to it that can't be mediated, it can't be it can't be fiddled with or or confused by signals coming up coming from on high and I, I my sense is that this is this is the hour of Illich's legibility this is this is why Illich feels so fresh and so valuable to read is because he seems to he seems to be really zeroed in on just the 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 essence and and the the significance of everything that we do with each other when we are actually talking to each other when we're actually breaking bread with each other there's 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 real uh, there's real stuff being produced there that's very hard for our kind of contemporary technologically mediated minds to to appreciate and and yet he's able to kind of articulate this and model this i think very convincingly and 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 substantively yeah, and I would just add. I think you know the the phrases come to my mind, um, Nina, for that those those um, 
you know, middle of, of the way institutions, uh, I think Ro it was the American sociologist Robert Bela who spoke of, of uh, mediating institutions or a position between the individual and the state, um, and, and that many of those have withered and have faded, um, and that, you know, we, we have been positioned in this sort of very uh, precarious uh, place of, of being chiefly consumers, uh, unable to do very much for ourselves, dependent on others, uh, and, and that the problem, though, is that you, one can't just say, well, I, now I want to do things differently because you have not been trained to do this, right? We haven't been brought up to do this. We lack those capacities. We lack those structures in which we would be able to do so. So to step out in that direction um, would be to, to become extremely vulnerable. Um, and, and so I, you know, I've uh, talking with somebody recently about this, there's maybe it is just a matter of um, of, of getting a, a critical mass of movement in this direction where then it becomes more plausible in order to do that. Um, but I think we are at this stage where it it it, it requires a great deal of imagination uh, and perhaps even courage uh, to be able to to think about what a different mode of life might be to draw others to that um, and to and then build up the resources and the capacity and new new forms of institutions that are not disabling, right, that are empowering, that bring people together in a way that um, supports uh, human flourishing rather than eliminating some of the, the very um, foundations of it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Michael, do, I, I'd love to hear a little bit more. I'm sure you've thought about this deeply. I mean, what, what do you think those new institutions look like moving forward? Or are there interesting initiatives going on right now that you, you think are particularly promising? Or yeah, do you do you have anything to say on that front about the about these institutions of the? Uh, that's a great question. I think my first thought is I, I wish I had more to say about it. You know, so in my own personal context, you know, I think of the institution that I you know that I work for right now, um, and I, I do kind of think about it as as something that might give us a glimpse of 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 what learning might look like without credentials in view, without, you know, the, the, the dependence on the school system in view. Um, so, you know, people gather where we, um, where we meet to, to learn, to discuss, to converse. Uh, they get nothing out of it, um, you know, except the joy and satisfaction that comes from being with other people who are interested in thinking and learning together, right? And so, um, but, you know, we don't, the, the, the question of how do you sustain this work is also important. So we, you know, we depend on, on donors, on financial support. Um, so figuring out how to make these things sort of financially viable um, and, and then drawing others to it. And then, um, yeah, finding other examples like this in other, you know, in other areas of life and other, um, you know, sectors of our experience, I think, would be important. But I, I think it begins, I, you know, this seems so inadequate in some respects, but, but I, I think there is something really vital to this. And, and Illich, I think himself would say it begins when we invite the other across the threshold of our door and, and, and sit with them together at a table. Um, and, and we sort of almost learn what it is to enjoy that, to recognize our mutual humanity in that way. Um, and so it, it is a matter, I think, of starting at, at this very seemingly insignificant uh, but critical uh, level of of learning to recenter our experience on our body, cultivating friendship, um, pursuing truth in, this, in these contexts of, of small scale uh, friendships that are that are that are places where we can trust. You know, there's such a, a, a tremendous amount of cynicism and posturing in public intellectual life uh, at the moment, right? Where um, it's very um, difficult to to feel like you can. Speak freely in some respects, um, and so to create context where that can happen, 
um, I think is is the key, right? You know, and, and what institutions come out of that, you know, a generation, two, three, four generations down the line, I think that also might be the time scale at which we need to be thinking, um, where perhaps now we're just laying the seeds for what will happen in, in 200 years. Um, I don't know that if that's helpful at all. It, it often doesn't feel helpful when I say this, but... Yeah, I mean, it's a massive question. I was just curious what your what your intuitions were, but no, there, there's an important lead there. I mean, I think one interesting question to me is we've talked a lot in this podcast about senses and sensibility, and Michael, you've mentioned the body and and kind of centering or learning to recenter the body. I think a lot of people listening could easily want to interpret this as meaning a kind of justification for uh, a kind of hedonism, and I, and I think that this is a kind of uh, a potential threat or a potential risk to the emphasis that that we're putting on senses and the body, because of course you know uh, Illich led a fairly uh, culturally conservative life. He was of course a Roman Catholic priest, and he, you know he spoke uh, he spoke very much about the 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 problems and the threats of of you know the sins such as lust, right? And so I think in an, in an interesting way in our culture today. All the stuff we're saying about sensibility in the body makes a lot of sense to people. And they, and then they say to themselves, oh, okay, so then I'm just going to go have a ton of romantic partners. I'm going to be polyamorous and I don't need to ever get married or, um, you know, tie myself down. And that's, I think, very much not the the gist of, of what Illich is trying to teach. And in fact, in one of your letters in uh, the Confibial Society Substack that you run, the one that's called Surviving the Show, Illich and the Case for an Esquisis of Perception. There's an interesting opening quote uh, by Ivan Illich. He's talking here about Jacques Ellul, but the, the idea is basically he says that he refers to the chaste look that the rule of St. Benedict opposes to the cupiditas oculorum or lust of the eyes seems to me to be the fundamental condition for renouncing that technique, which sets up a definitive obstacle to friendship. And so he's talking about this kind of asceticism of a kind of sensual praxis, but not the kind of sensual praxis people today would naturally think of when they think of the senses or sensuality, which immediately goes into a kind of sexual hedonistic kind of a register. He's actually talking about uh, the chaste look of, of, of St. Benedict. So I'm just curious if we could pause on this. I'm curious if either of you have any, any takes on this, uh, because obviously sexuality, gender, these, these are huge topics today. Um, you know, I just think it's 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 an interesting provocation. I just wanted to throw out there because people listening to all this talk about sensuality in the body uh, might not naturally understand this aspect of of the 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 asceticism of it, the 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 self discipline. Yeah, can I can I just add something on that? I mean, I think you know, yeah, we, yes, we live in a highly sort of hedonistic, sexualized age, and it's both puritanical and prurient. And I always talk about puritan, you know, the puritanical nature of our age. You know, it's this horrible combination, and you know, people are encouraged to have lots of, you know, as you say, multiple relationships that are not though intimate necessarily, right? In fact, they're, they're, you know, the worst thing you can do is catch feelings, right? You know, the idea that you might actually start to care for somebody else that you're having a, you know, right. nevertheless sharing your body with. I mean, so in a sense, it's kind of di diametrically opposed to any real uh, form of sen sensuality or sensibility or bodily intimate encounter or relation with anyone. And it's very interesting at the beginning, in the introduction to Tools for Conviviality, um, Illich makes a very, um, you know, strong point about um, what he calls austerity which you know has all these terrible negative associations in in you know and you were talking about um asceticism and so on and and 
there's a way in which um, Illich wants to redeem the word austerity, and he he takes it from um, Aquinas and 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 Aristotle, and he says it's actually the foundation of friendship. And what austerity is is actually a kind of um, creative playfulness, and the word is eutropelia, graceful playfulness. And austerity is not about excluding enjoyments, he says, but only those which are distracting from or destructive of personal relatedness. And this is a very interesting point when we're thinking about like when we're with someone else, like we're with a partner. Or or with a friend, you know, or family member, and somebody, you know, we do care about, and we have a, we have deep ties and 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 attachments and and duties and you know, love and all of these sorts of things. You know, the idea of of um, austerity as a as a mode of being with other people that um, turns away from distraction, I think, is an incredibly useful way of thinking about it. And and it, you know, even on the very practical level of like I don't know you're sitting with your partner in your on your phone or something you know like that that in a way there's a way you know that's taking you away from you know the situation it's taking you away from that relationality the the intensity and you know the being with another which actually has everything contained within it like you don't need to be distracted but we're kind of you know these 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 tools are designed to be completely distracting and addictive and compulsive and you know the endless scrolling da, da, da. you know and I think I, I kind of really wonder about the, the sort of generation that usually gets referred to as Zoomers who will have lived already like a large portion of their life online, like school would be online, relations would be online, their kind of identity in life is online, that we might not see, I, I ha, I'm very optimistic always, but that we might see a kind of rebellion against, almost like a punk rebellion against being online in favour of, um, you know, uh, presence, nature, out the outside, you know, this idea of touching grass is like this current meme, you know, like you say to someone who's too online, like go and touch grass and, you know, that, that actually there will be a kind of turn away from the, the highly mediated, distracting, addictive, you know, nature of the internet towards um, real experiences, you know, and I, I really wonder if there'll be this kind of cultural break um, with with the internet because it was it would just become totally uncool this is what i think well i think it's already happening i mean i think i i think yeah, i might think so? i might be more bullish on the internet than than youtube perhaps because in my view in my pocket of the world what looks to me is happening is people are basically using the internet to leave behind the internet in a way it's like this amazing uh, technology where you can basically go find all the people you like who are interested in a similar you know vision of the world that you want to cultivate and you can basically then just start meeting them in real life, build your own little groups and clubs and organizations, have in-person meetups regularly, maybe even move to the same geographical location as organized through the internet. And in this way, you know, modern technology becomes the escape hatch from modern technology, perhaps. I mean, I, I, I see a lot of this going on. So um, I don't know. Yeah, the, the ladder you throw away once you've um, gotten to where you need to be. Yeah, yeah and, and that could be, uh, you know, I, it, I, I don't know to what degree that, that is happening. Um, and, and I can't, um, it's hard to predict what kind of reactions uh, there will be or won't be. Uh, but, but I would, yeah, I would certainly say that you know, what Illich has in mind is, um, is not, not quite a hedonism, you know, unless if by that you mean, you know, it's, it's the pleasure of rediscovering our humanity, right, the fullness of our humanity and, and, and of, of, of deep, meaningful friendships. Um, and and that, that chaste look, um, is, is, there's a discipline, right, in being able to, to see. And I, I, 
I, I think it has to do in some respects with attention and the way that Simone Weil talks about attention, um, where we, we learn to simply attend to the world that is before us. And I think most, I, I don't know, I think that sometimes the reaction to that kind of language is, well, of course I do. I'm doing it right now. Don't we always do it? How can you not do it? Um, but that actually, no, to, to, you know, to look is not always to see what is there and, and that there, there's a kind of uh, temporal aspect to that. You must, you must to learn to, to look, to see uh, for a long period of time to actually begin to recognize the depth of, of experience of reality. You know, and even if it's with, you know, the, 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 and it's not just, of course, with sight, but with the other senses, um, you know, as you know, Nina was mentioning earlier, the, the, the bird song outside of our uh, windows, right? Um, it's always there, but I don't know that we always attend to it in a way that makes it the small little miracle that it is, um, you know, to attend to the patterns and the rhythms of, of the world beyond our heads. Uh, it, it, it actually takes a measure of discipline because everything is calling us away from it and fracturing our capacity to attend to it. And so that, that's the kind of asceticism that I think Illich was in the last stages of his life trying to, to rediscover in the way that he, he you know, always did, which was to turn back historically to trace the history of perception, the history of, of vision, um, the, you know, the, um, the history of each of the senses. And that's a project that was cut short for him by his death. But, but especially on vision, he has some really interesting papers that that newsletter you referenced, um, you know, is built largely off of a couple of those one written in the last year of his life. Um, but to learn to to reengage our senses, I think is is what's in view here. And I think his his sense is that we will that there's a reward, there's a payoff, um, and and it's the sort of thing you can't communicate. You just have to experience. Um, and, and certainly I think for Illich, there was a theological dimension to this, which isn't always apparent. Um, and so, you know, where you ground, you know, the, 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 the good that you will receive will vary. Um, you know, that's a maybe another discussion, but, but right, the, the, the disciplining of the senses is for the sake of a deeper enjoyment of, of the world. I want to learn a little bit more, Michael, about how you see the current landscape for intellectuals, because I see you as a very fantastic example of someone with a background and a footing in academia, but who's also really leveraging the internet quite effectively to perhaps carve out a bit more space for oneself to pursue the ideas that you're interested in, in your own language, in your own way. And you've done quite a good job. You have, you know, I think quite a, quite a lot of subscribers. You're quite renowned, I would say. Everyone I've ever heard mention you is always in a positive light. And so you've built, I think, a pretty impressive little profile for yourself, mostly through writing on the internet. And so I'm just kind of curious how you see this landscape. Was was it surprising to you that your writings uh, developed the following that they developed? Was, did that come as a total surprise to you? And what do you make of that fact, uh, especially as you compare it to the current, you know, prospects uh, in academia? Yeah, no, uh, that's certainly a surprise. Um, I mean, it's still, I would say, you know, very modest, especially by the by, you know, measures of some people who have now kind of made their own brand and gone out and done the Substack thing and uh, and are, are obviously doing quite well f for themselves. Um, you know, I. I don't make a uh, living exclusively off of what I do, but it is an important part of, um, you know, the, the writing is an important part of, of how I do make a living. And, um, and so I'm, I'm glad for it. And, and I, I don't know that I had a plan setting out, like I said, at the outset, I just started writing because it felt like a good thing for me to do. Um, and at first it was in conjunction with this sort of very, 
what I thought was going to be a very traditional academic path. You know, you do your PhD, you go on, you get a you know, career teaching somewhere. Of course, even then I knew that, the, you know, the odds of that panning out were, were quite low. But um, the, the, the only uh, thing I've done is to keep writing. Um, and so it's been, you know, by, you know, some measure of, of, of luck and good fortune um, that, you know, at some times that writing has caught the eye of this person and another person. I've had, you know, very generous uh, readers um, who have, uh, you know, shared the work and, and spoken well of it. And so I um, I don't know that I, I have ever, ever had a, a method or a program. I was always just trying to try my, make my way. Um, and, and this sort of emerged along the way, and I'm glad for it. And, um, you know, I've tried to nurture it to some degree, more so uh, over the last couple of years. Uh, but I think fundamentally it just comes down to me sitting down and, and continuing to write and, and hopefully in a way that, that others find helpful and illuminating. And, and as I, you know, I, I frequently say it's, it's often a, a, an effort to channel the work of other scholars that I'm indebted to, uh, Illich and Elul and McLuhan and Postman, and this older generation of, of, of critics that I think have so much to say to our present moment. Um, and, and so you know, I, I try to be a kind of conduit to their work uh, as much as possible. Yeah, absolutely. And your book, which is called The Frailest Thing, which you published on the internet, I'm curious a little bit about the the decision calculus there. I mean, you're a very successful and accomplished person. I'm sure you could have very well gotten a traditional book contract for that book, probably if you if you wanted to and you tried to. How did you think about that forking path? I'm sure when you decided you wanted to collect your writings, you must have considered, oh, should I pursue a traditional route to have this book published or should I publish it myself? How did you think that through? I'm just curious how you how you thought about that. Maybe I didn't think through it well enough, um, and uh, and I I mean I'm I'm very grateful for um, for the way you're framing it. I, I honestly I, I suppose I was um, you know brought up in the analog age enough that I I didn't think it was worth uh, pursuing a publisher for what were essentially a set of blog posts uh, collected over ten years. So um, to me it was just a very natural thing. I, I wanted to give it. Um, you know, a measure of permanence. It's still an ebook, right? But um, but I thought that in collecting that, it was, it was an interesting way to kind of remember what I had done, uh, put it together in a single place, and, and I did it for myself to some degree, um, and then yeah, put it on Gumroad for people to pick up, um, you know, as they saw fit. And and so that yeah, that was the the thought process there. And uh, honestly, I it it, it did not. Um, really occurred to me to, to pursue any other way of, of publishing that because, you know, again, I thought, yeah, that material, you know, it is what it is. And, and I'm, um, you know, I suppose, um, proud of it to, to a certain degree. Um, but this seemed like the best way of, of giving it another life. Yeah, I, I think it's really great. I mean, it remains really faithful to the kind of blog format in a way like, you know, it and the length of the posts are, you know, it's very considered, it's very thoughtful, it's very clear, it's very well written, you know, it refers to all these things. But it, it is recognisably like a blog post length. And but there's something kind of wonderful about that. It's like between the fragment and the chapter you know and like I guess when we were doing zero books years ago like we were trying to in a way convert blogs into short books but they were still recognizably books to some extent they were kind of like compressed blog posts or like you know written up blog posts but actually I think you know I mean I really enjoyed reading the frailest thing and I think there was something about the yeah your your fidelity to the to the form that is very beautiful collected text you know like it it's and it, and and it actually makes it very very readable and comprehensible in a way that kind I of maybe you, you know synthesizing it into a book might have undermined somehow michael what do your colleagues on campus make of your internet clout are they aware at all or uh, are they not even aware and does it you know come up at all in any interesting ways uh, yeah, I, I, I don't actually uh, make much of it. Uh, you know, I think I've had some 
you know, friends at, at the institution uh, read of and subscribe about it. Some of them, um, you know, are certainly appreciative of it. Um, but um, yeah, it, it 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 might catch some by surprise that I have this other other world that I'm uh, speaking to. Yeah. Okay, fascinating. Well, Nina, I don't know if you want to squeeze in any final final questions or comments, but you know, Michael, I just want to. Thank you for joining. Uh, we're both big fans of your work. For people watching or listening, we're going to put show notes. Uh, we're going to put links in the show notes. So I'll put a link to uh, Michael's Substack. It's called The Convivial Society. And I'll also put a link to Michael's book, which is called uh, The Frailest Thing, which we were just talking about. And so if people want to follow up with Michael and learn more about his work, you can find the links in the show notes. Michael, just want to thank you for having this conversation with us. It's a pleasure to have you on. And Nina, thank you for joining as well. Thank you, Michael. And, it was yeah. very, I, I really, really enjoyed listening to what you said and the way you said it. it was very beautiful. Yeah, and thank you both for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. So thanks again, Michael. Great work. Keep it up. Uh, we're big fans and we hope you continue with, uh, you know, your, your independent intellectualism on the internet. It's a really great thing. And I'm, I, I, I'm a big fan of all people like you. There's more and more people like you out there now who are really, I think, leveraging the internet to really maximize their creative intellectual potential. And, uh, yeah, I, I mention you sometimes to people as, as an excellent example of that. So thanks for doing the work you do and I hope you keep it up. Thank you very much. Yeah. All right, guys. Thanks so much for joining us and, uh, for everyone watching and listening, we'll see you next week. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. You made it all the way to the very end, so you must really like the show. In that case, I would be super grateful if you'd be so kind to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. All you have to do is go to otherlife.co slash review. That's otherlife.co forward slash review, and it'll send you an Apple Podcasts. Just leave a review. You can be honest. Tell me what you really think. I'd really appreciate it because it'll help other people find the show, and I'm really trying to grow out the podcast. So thanks for listening, and thank you for leaving a review. I really appreciate it.